Welcome to the Target Oxbridge podcast, the podcast where we demystify the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and share tips on how to improve your chances of getting into Oxbridge. My name is Naomi Kalman and I am the founder of Target Oxbridge. Target Oxbridge is a programme that has been running since 2012 to help black African and Caribbean students to gain places at Oxford and Cambridge. We've helped over 200 students to gain offers so far and so we've gathered quite a bit of experience over the years. The aim of this podcast is to share the information and top tips that we've gathered with students, parents and teachers, as well as sharing the stories of people who have studied there. For this next series of episodes, we will be focusing on the theme of storytelling, as we believe that sharing our stories is the best way to demystify the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. Today, I'm joined by Malik Al-Nasser, who is a poet, a social activist, and also a researcher of sugar slavery in Guyana. And I'm really excited to open this series, which will be focusing on the power of storytelling with this interview, because Malik has had a brilliant and fascinating story go viral just in the past few days. And thank you so much for joining us today, because I know it's been so busy for you. It's my absolute pleasure, and uh, Naomi, as I said to you when you first um, came to my attention um, with regard to this podcast, this is a priority for me um, because I know what it takes to gain access to these elite institutions from my own personal experience, um, and in that sense, um, I understand the value of being able to provide some insight um, to others to be able to give them uh, the kind of encouragement and also um, some of the, the the tactics, if you like, of how to go about um, doing that, because we need greater representation for a black and minority ethnic people within um, the elite institutions, particularly the Russell Group universities and specifically Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and and my, my ultimate objective is to see not only more black students coming in at undergraduate level, but pushing through to postgraduate level and paths to professorships as well, because the professors um, are, are seriously underrepresented uh, when you talk about black British professors. I think the report of the Leading Roots organisation, um, which was done in 2017, uh, called the Broken Pipeline Report, um, reported that there were only of all of the postgraduate funding that was given through the uh, UKRI for postgraduate research for PhDs, uh, I think it was 16,000, 16,500 um, or so um, scholarships that were awarded and only um, something like 200 of them, 230 of them went to um, you know, black uh, students and uh, less than uh, 30 of them went to people um, of black British Caribbean descent. So there is, you know, very much a, um, a lack of representation at the higher echelons of academia. And in order to be able to get the academic credentials necessary to, um, you know, to, to populate those spaces, you know, you need to be published, you, you know, you need a path to professorship. And, and you need funding to do that. And if you've gone through an undergraduate degree and got 30 grand, 40 grand in debt through that, and then you do your master's and you know 10 grand in debt through that, and then suddenly you've got to self-finance you, you know, through a PhD, you know, you'll be 100 grand in debt by the time you get there and you'll be paying that off for the entirety of your career. So, you know, to black people, those things are barriers to academia. So, you know, we need to find ways to try and change the game, if you like, and that's really um, what I'm hoping to, you know, use my platform uh, as, a, as a means to sort of highlight those issues and those disparities and see if there's a way to, to reconcile that. 
Yes, and I, I think that is really important. At Target Oxbridge, we've been focused on undergraduate admissions because back in 2012, that was where there was a really clear need. And I guess it's the beginning of the pipeline, but it's becoming more and more apparent that the next thing to be thinking about is what happens at the next step, you know, progression to master's, progression on to PhD level. And I think when we're talking to students, there's often a question as to how diverse are the people teaching us? Mm-hmm. And that does require you to start looking at the pipeline. It takes time to progress. And so the sooner we start thinking about it, the better. What I'd love to do is start by talking with you about this brilliant story that's had, I think, already over a million views and readers on the BBC. So it's just, it's, it's amazing. And it all started with you watching a football documentary. Is that right? Yeah, back in 2002, um, BBC Scotland um, were doing a series, well, it was actually a documentary on 100 years of black footballers uh, from Arthur Wharton, who played for Preston North End at the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century, and uh, right up to your sort of Justin Fashion News and John Barnes's and so on and so forth. And when they were um, investigating this, the researchers um, came across some Scottish football annuals in the Scottish Football Museum. And as they were going through the annuals, they're looking at these really old sepia tone um, photographs and they found this guy and they were like, he's black. Um, but it was 1880. It was 20 years before Arthur Wharton. So they were like, who is this guy? And then they started doing some investigation and they discovered a character called Andrew Watson, uh, who is now widely acknowledged as the world's first black footballer, the world's first black captain, the world's first black international um, and, and the world's first black uh, club secretary. And um, it turns out that um, they had some photographs of him um, because, you know, some illustrations from the news media at the time because he was a famous sportsman. Um, he'd also been a high jumper before he was a footballer and he was successful at that too. So um, when I looked at the illustrations of him, I was taken aback. I was completely in a state of shock because he looked just like me. Um, and he was born in Demerara, which is where my father come from. And uh, he was a Watson, which was also my father's name. I converted to Islam in 1992 and changed my name. Um, that's um, Malik al-Nasser. Prior to that, I was Mark Watson. Um, so, you know, and my father was born in 1918 and his father in the 1880s. And Andrew Watson was born in 1856. So I'm looking at this thing and going, this guy is just a spitting image of me. Like, <laughs> there has to be a connection. He's from the same place as my father. And... You know, there's just no way that we're not connected. But I don't know how, you know, so I have to find a way. So I started two family trees on Genes Reunited back in 2003. And that was one for me and one for him because I thought if we're not connected, I don't want to be like having a messed up family tree uh, that doesn't connect. So I thought, right, let me just create one for him and create one for me. And as I started creating one for him, I just uncovered the most incredible web of... um, mercantile interests and uh, political ties and uh, industrial ties and academic ties that blew me away. I mean, this guy's like he's a black man in Scotland in the 1880s, captaining the Scottish national football team, beat England 6-1. You know, um, he's the club secretary for the Corinthians of the famous Corinthian spirit. You know, he's the he's playing for um, Queen's Park, who were the biggest football team in the world at that time. Um, and and he's a black Victorian gentleman, you know, who's I've, I've never heard I'd never heard of him until reading your story. But that, that's an amazing set 
of achievements. It, it was. And then, but the question is, you know, who, who is he? And, and initially there was a documentary about him where they really did a very extensive kind of um, thing on his his footballing history because when the BBC Scotland saw, saw found you know this discovery they thought well we're not going to put him in the 100 years of black footballers because this guy needs a show all by himself so they made a separate documentary for him um, but there wasn't much information available about him and his family life so um, I think they took a little bit of creative license with that and it didn't um, it didn't go well because they ended up saying he you know he died in in um, Australia and he's buried over there and they found someone with the same name and the grave and everything and it turns out when we got the census data for 1911 that he was actually living in London when they said he was dead in Australia <laughs> you know they, they got it wrong so uh, you know I'm thinking like I'm, I'm sure this guy's my relative I need to find out who he is I need to trace his family tree and then I need to tell the story correct I'm not going to interfere in the football side of it. That's not my expertise. I will leave that to the football experts. But from the genealogical point of view, if this guy's my ancestor, I don't want his legacy trashed by, you know, uh, poor research. I want to do extensive research, establish the truth about this guy and his family. And then I want to um, make that, you know, put that into the public domain. And I've been researching for over 15 years um, with regard to Andrew Watson. And it's led me to the point where um, I became passionate um, about uh, the subject matter to, to, to the extent that I would start to buy documents online um, that I could find which related to any member of the family tree that I could find old letters, you know, um, something relating newspaper articles pertaining to them from the period that someone was selling off or whatever. And I started to accrue a very small archive initially of ephemera and, and different bits and pieces of things. Some stamp collectors used to collect these um, these old letters with the wax seal um, mm -hmm. with the postmarks. And some of the postmarks are quite rare and quite valuable. And if the postmarks are not valuable, they sort of sell them off really cheap. Uh, and this particular occasion, um, this this came up on, on eBay. It was a batch of these documents. And were you doing this research sort of in your spare time out of... Yeah, it was always in my spare time. Yeah, I mean, literally, I was running a company out in Dubai and I was like at night, you know, sitting there in a hotel, you know, on the Wi-Fi, just, do, you know, <laughs> doing my family tree. Wherever I had a spare moment, I would just do something on the family tree. So it was more of a passion thing at that time. Um, but then I came across this cache of documents and I recognized some of the names on the documents, some of the business names and company names and, and, and some of the family names. And I just thought, this is all about them. And it was being sold as a job lot. I mean, it was thousands of pounds. It wasn't cheap, um, but it was um, it's actually a lot more valuable than what the people knew because they were valuing it purely on the basis of they're all old and they've got nice postmarks. Um, they weren't right. They weren't thinking about the content. And collectors, they're not interested in the content at all. It meant nothing to them, and there was so little information about these people out there in the public domain at that time that they didn't really care. So um, I just I literally whacked the whole thing on my credit card, maxed it out and just thought, I'm going to have them, and then we'll just wait, let the chips fall where they may. Um, and the gamble paid off. I'm still paying off with interest. <laughs> oh, wow. That's why I'm open. If we get a book deal, you know, I'm going to settle a credit card bill. Um, <laughs> it was a huge gamble, do you know what I mean? It was like, you know, it was incredibly wanton of me to do it, but I felt it was a good investment at the time, and, and that has proven to be the, the, the right decision because uh, what it's revealed is something that's going to be sort of, you know, paradigm shift uh, material, you know, in terms of how we look at um, Demerara and the slave trade because what it revealed was a whole plethora 
of um, interrelationships between mercantile individuals um, that were all interconnected through family businesses and had a collective power base that was um, unsurpassed by hardly anyone else at that time. And, and when you look at the UCL website, for instance, you look at the legacy of British slave owners, you will see individuals like, for instance, John Gladstone. He's the highest single recipient of slavery compensation. He's the father of the, what the future um, prime minister, William Ewart Gladstone, who served three terms, I think, as prime minister, liberal um, prime minister. And, and John Gladstone receives more money than any one individual. And everyone puts him, oh, John Gladstone, he got the most money. What they're not saying is that John Gladstone was part of this family. So in order to really understand it, you've got to take John Gladstone and all his other people and aggregate their wealth against, you know, this firm, which were called Sam Tinney, and all of their wealth as well. But you can only do that if you've got the family tree. So me having the family tree, I was able to join the dots where no one else was seeing it, which kind of came with a, it's a more of a new methodological approach to kind of historiography because I'm using genealogy as critical method, which is not commonly done. Right, that's interesting because, I mean, I'm not a historian, but I would have thought that if you want to trace the connections and the the money ultimately as to where where the compensation went and what impact it had, you'd trace it through families. So I I'm surprised that it's um not something that was being done before. Well, the database wasn't set up in that way. It was set up as a list of beneficiaries and people who actually mm. money. So it was a list of claimants. Do you see what I mean? So when they first yeah. did it, it was about digitizing the individual claims and showing every single claim, regardless of who it was, that every single amount, no matter what it was, how big or small. So you could then look at it from that point of view and say, okay, these are the big guys, these are the small guys. It's evolved since then. I, you know, I met with Karen Hall um, from UCL, who's um, one of the people who's um, you know, in, in charge of that uh, database. And I mentioned my concerns with regard to the lack of um, genealogical interconnectedness there and the fact that the information is somewhat skewed in the sense that you only see these people as individuals and not seeing the familial collective um, uh, mercantile uh, power. Um, and she agreed with me that that was a limitation of it, but they've addressed that somewhat as well because they've had uh, some funding from Harvard University, I think, um, or some philanthropists in America, and they've now got a team back on it and they develop it in different ways. So you're starting to see the UCL archive now developing with much more familial information in there um, and also uh, partnership arrangements between members of different companies and so on. So when I was first looking at it, you wouldn't see Sam Tinney as an entity there. They're there now with all the partners, but there's still not the wider family. There's still not the relationship, for instance, between Samuel Sandbach, the head of Sandbach's Tinney, and John Gladstone. You know, they're both huge recipients yeah. of, uh, of, of compensation, but not together. We're not looking at them as an entity. And when we um, were doing an article recently for the, um, for the Times, um, they wanted to know what was the collective value of this. And I sent them to UCL and they just said the data is not structured in the way for us to be able to do that. Um, so that is something for, for a future project. But one of the things that I wanted to do, and I hope will come out of my research and why I wanted to go to Cambridge, because they've got the best archivist, they've got the best, you know, um, specialists in handwriting and, you know, they've got all the latest technologies and so on. I wanted to find a way to be able to take my archive around Sambachtini, where the dynasty is the core of it digitize that and then have that in a similar sense to the way the UCL 
archive is as a resource, which people can then, through public social authoring, can add to information and build it up, but with the family tree at the epicenter of it, not the claims. Because, you know, the legacy of British slave owners, it's a snapshot in time. It's one day in 1834 when every single slave, slave trader was compensated who, who cashed in their slaves. Um, you know, uh, what my research is about is more around um, 300 years of, of a family dynasty that was founded and rooted on slavery and then continued through the apprenticeship system post-slavery and then through um, indentured labor and continued from the 1750s right up to the 1970s, you know. Um, so Building up that picture. Exactly. So in time, where, where did this money go and what influence did it have? Exactly. I mean, when I was reading your, your account, what I found interesting was also as you were you know your, your start here was your own personal connection mm-hmm. to um to this this family and as you went through you sort of discovered connections to both people who'd enslaved people and then also people who'd been enslaved yeah and that's the uncomfortable reality of it and and one of the things that I'm I, I've said this in a couple of the articles that I've done recently you know, I don't like the idea of taking the historical fact and just manipulating it to the narrative that suits your purpose, you know, and and, and that's what I think has happened in a lot of times. I mean, when Roots came out, for instance, um, Alex Haley did an incredible job with with that um, with that book. Um, he's, a, you know, it was one of the first books that I read when I learned to read um, and uh, following on with the miniseries and everything else that came out, um, it changed people's perspective on the whole concept of slavery. But what it also did inadvertently, which was perhaps a downside of Roots, was it gave people the impression that that was slavery. You know, that American plantation slavery was the de facto methodology for you know, managing slave plantations based on the Virginias and the Carolinas and the Deep South and, you know, uh, the Antebellum South and all that sort of stuff. So so there was there, there was a, a, a sort of um, a, a paradigm that was established there that everybody then defaulted to in terms of the nature of the relationships between the masters and the slaves and the sexual exploitation of slaves and, you know, the way the plantations run and, you know, children of plantation owners and slaves being sold and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And and actually the slavery, um, whole entire episode of slavery was far more nuanced than that. But he was telling a particular story across generations again um, from his family, although he had uh, animated some of it for, for dramatic purposes. So it was based on fact, but it was, you know, essentially a work of fiction. Um, but he was using the sort of uh, standard um, understanding that people had over time of, of plantation slavery, but from the American point of view. The way in which slavery was practiced in South America was incredibly different. And, and there were a whole lot of different things that were going on in the French colonies, over the Portuguese colonies like Brazil, different things that were happening in the Dutch colonies. You know, it, there was different political dynamics. There were different, um, not just geopolitical, but economic dynamics that were at play. There were different legal frameworks that were at play. Um, and there was just different, there were different religious uh, underpinnings as well. In Guyana, it was Church of Scotland's Presbyterian. In, in, in America's, it was more Catholic, you know. So um, they had different ideas just from a religious perspective about the concept of slavery and the nature of the slaves and the, how you deal with the slaves and, you know, the issues around marriage and sexual proclivity and all that sort of stuff was, you know, it, it was nuanced. So you can't just take the sort of Alex Haley roots paradigm and say they're slavery. You know, you, you've, got, yeah, you've got to look at all of it 
And you've got to look at how it was in the Caribbean, how it was in South America, how it was in the diaspora, you know, for the people who had been brought to Europe and how and that, the people who were enslaved in Africa. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's the value in the research that you'll be doing and, and what I hope will be an increase in that type of research with that nuance because I don't think from a sort of generalist perspective um, the history that we consume generally as we grow up doesn't doesn't have that nuanced picture or no. that, that sense of how different it was in different places and what that meant. But that's because our voice has been absent in the in the in the narrative. Um, obviously America, black America, you know, you've got 56 million black people um, in America. They've been able to push through into the middle classes. They're ahead of us in Europe, you know. Um, so therefore they've been able to force their way into the, the corridors of power and they've been able to force their way into the echelons of decision-making boardrooms, you know, to have a voice to some degree. They've had a black president. We, you know, what's the chance of us having a black prime minister? You know, we're, we're far behind where America is in that sense. So there's a, there's a danger, if you like, although that's progress to a degree, there's a danger um, that in that sense that we will take their um, firsts, if you like, as being the standard by which everything else is judged. When it just wasn't the only thing that was happening, it just happened that there was more of them and they were able to get a voice earlier. So their story became prominent first. Um, the people in the Caribbean are still not given that voice. You mm. know? Um, and, and it's going to be a long time before you know their stories get out. Had it not been for reggae music, uh, we wouldn't know a fraction of what we know about Caribbean slavery. Um, but it was the export of reggae music as a cultural, you know, product, if you like, um, that brought the world to, you know, having some sort of understanding of what was happening in the Caribbean from the works of Bob Marley, you know, Jean Bentabriz, Muta Baruka, you know, people like that who were still pulse. You know, these people were able to um, give us a, a sense of of, um, of what it was like to be, you know, in the Caribbean or from the Caribbean, and 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 um, you know the the whole way in which that that place functioned during slavery. So there are narratives which are yet to be discovered. The Guyana and the sugar trade is one of the most under-researched areas within the slave trade. You know, you'll find far more on Jamaica and slavery than you will on Guyana and slavery. Uh, and the stories are so much more rich because um, as far as what I've been able to ascertain is that much of the sugar cultivation that was being done on an industrial scale in Damarara um, actually financed many of the slave enterprises that then went on and did other stuff in the Caribbean and also in the Carolinas and, and in Virginia. Um, right, so there was a network in that sense as well. And what that does is it kind of turns on its head the whole thing about the Industrial Revolution um, being fueled just by cotton. You know, well, if cotton fueled the Industrial Revolution and and the whole thing around Lancashire, you know, the places where they were producing the uh, the textiles and so on, um, you know, and the spinning jennies and all that kind of stuff. Um, if sugar was financing the establishment of those plantation uh, slave enterprises, then actually it was sugar that was behind the Industrial Revolution, not cotton. And that, that that's a that's a different narrative. Uh, I think it shows the power of having different people and diverse perspectives looking into these histories and doing it in a holistic way without it being one one set narrative or one understanding of how things happened because things are nuanced, as you've said. And what, what I found interesting reading um, the BBC piece was following, following the money, so to speak, yeah. and looking as to where the money that um, 
well, it was associated with your ancestors, then ended up, and it followed you back to Liverpool when you did that search. Yeah, I mean, I mean, methodologically, you're looking at kind of prosopography. You know, you want to get a wide picture of the whole entire thing. What the family tree, using that as a kind of critical method, what that does is it gives you the opportunity to be able to see the interconnectedness and see how they're everyone intermarrying and doing business deals when they're intermarrying, so that they're maintaining the sort of hegemony through through the economic interrelationships. And what that means is then, you know, okay, you can you can join the business as a partner, but you have to marry my niece. Okay, so now you're going to make your money, but your grandchildren are going to be, you know, my great nieces and nephews, you know what I mean? Or, you know, or you have to marry my sister, you know, and your children will be my nieces and nephews. And, you know, I'll leave some of my money to them and you leave some of your money to mine. And, you know, it was that kind of relationship. It was almost incestuous because there was so much money involved. It was a humongous amount of money. And I'm talking about one familial dynasty, not the whole of slavery. This is just one familial dynasty, but they made a powerful impact and nobody was talking about them because nobody could see them. And the reason no one could see them is because they were not looking at those interrelationships. They were looking at a bunch of individuals and they weren't making the connections. But the family tree enabled me to do that. And it's really interesting, since I sort of announced that from what I was doing, um, I've been invited to Glasgow University to um, to teach undergrads. And they've also asked me for um, uh, if, if it was okay for their PhD students to use my methodological approach. And I've also been given a, a fellowship to go to Tufts next year. With uh, in Boston, with access to the libraries in Harvard, um, which which is absolutely amazing. Um, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to that as well. And you know, the, it's an acknowledgement that my approach has been recognised. Um, it's been able to uncover something that others didn't have. So all the traditional classical approaches they haven't worked. And here I am coming through. You know, I don't have a first class honours degree. I don't have a master's with distinction. I've got an honours degree, I've got a postgraduate diploma, and I've got a master's, but they're not with distinction. Um, but yeah, I've committed 15 years research to do something which has had a global impact. It's going to potentially cause a paradigm shift. And I can't get funded because I can't meet the, the funding criteria, which is an elitist traditional criteria that if you don't have a first class honours degree and a master's with distinction, you don't qualify for, for um, you know, UKRI funding, whether it's AHRC or ESRC. And they don't seem to have a waiting for um, people of colour who've gone through maybe a, a range of other difficulties um, to sort of create parity between them and their white peers who've maybe had more stable upbringings, went to better schools, you know, um, had, you know, more um, supported life chances, if you like. And then being able to get those um, wonderful sort of, you know, standard qualifications. I only had two years of secondary education. Yeah, and, and you know, we there's a, quite a lot of talk at the moment about the black attainment gap at undergraduate level, and what you'll see is that sort of reproducing if the requirements for funding at those higher levels can't take into account that that wider wider context. And you, you mentioned just just now the fact that you had just two years of um, secondary school education. I think you said um, yes, and I, I thought when reading the BBC piece there was this amazing story of you tracing your ancestry and then also your your personal story of going um from being a care leaver who didn't have access to very much education due to the circumstances you were in to now going off to study a phd 
at Cambridge. Would you mind, would you mind sharing a bit about that, that journey? Well, I was, I was fortunate. At 18 years of age, I was thrown out of the social services um, you know, care system and put in a hostel for homeless black youths in post-riot Toxteth in Liverpool with £100 and no qualifications and semi-literate. Um, I was fortunate to meet an artist and an activist from America called Gil Scott Heron, um, who was on tour. He took pity on me, he put me on the road with him, and he taught me the industry. And he had a master's in English uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins University. And he encouraged me to write poetry and to use poetry as a means to educate myself. And I started to write poetry and, and learned to read and write really through poetry and developed a whole body of work from that. And it was through that exercise that I sort of, one, got a bit of a catharsis in terms of helping me to, you know, sort of heal my demons, if you like. Um, but two, I got the insight that was necessary to um, be able to, you know, get into the education system and actually start as a mature student um, through the BTEC route. And then, you know, as they released from work and then managed to sort of sneak the, in through the back door into um, into university um, to study subjects that I'd never studied ever. I did geography and sociology. I'd never studied either of those subjects. Um, so I went into university with no experience in either of the subjects. I still got a 2-2, you know. Um, so that's that's really how that came about. And then um, when the story of Gil Scott Heron's and my, uh, my life with Gil Scott Heron um, broke in The Guardian when he died. Um, I was invited to um, do a, 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 to Cambridge University by the black students um, to do um, a, a recital at the Judith E. Wilson Drama Studio, which I did in 2011. And I caught the attention of some people there who invited me back in 2017, um, where I did a seminar again at the Judith E. Wilson, but this time for the School of Latin American Studies um, called Artists as Activists and how I use my art as a means of activism to um, try and um, improve the situation of others um, through through artistic pursuits. And that's really how that came about. And I caught the attention of uh, Dr. Hank Gonzalez and he said, you need to apply for a PhD. And that's what I did. Did you ever imagine when you were younger that you might end up studying at PhD level? I knew I had the acumen, but I had never had the nurturing. Um, so I ended up taking control of my own education. The education system in this country completely failed me as a child. Um, so I took it upon myself to demonstrate to everyone, including those who have failed me, that the failure was not my failure. It was theirs. And it wasn't that there was something wrong with me that I didn't have the capacity or the intellect to be able to study at the highest levels. It was something wrong with the system that precluded me from doing so by the way it treated me right throughout my life. Um, and what I've done here is still managed to get to that seat, if you like, at the table without any of their help and support. Um, and that shows that it's, it's, you know, it's not me that's the problem. It's, it's them. So it's not me that has to change. It's, it's them that has to change. And, and I want them to change. And I hope that my life and my experiences will demonstrate to them. I mean, I'm not the only one. You know, look at Benjamin Zephaniah. You know, he's um, got 12 honorary doctorates and he never went to university. And he left the care system semi-literate and learned how to, um, you know, read and write himself properly through poetry, just like I did. And, and he's got seven of his books now published by Penguin on the national curriculum. You know, you've got Lem Sisse, who's also a fellow poet and friend of mine, 
uh, Lem Sisse also never went to university, uh, also grew up in a care system, also was traumatized through that process, um, also was treated, you know, really bad from a racial standpoint um, throughout his lifetime. His book is now a bestseller. Um, and he's now the um, the Chancellor of Manchester University. You know, and here I am going through all the stuff that I've gone through. I missed two years of primary education. I only had two years of secondary education. And now I'm being invited to do a PhD at, at Cambridge. You know, and all three of us are black. All three of us are poets. All three of us went through the care system. All three of us were let down, you know, by the system. And look what we've all achieved despite the system. And the point is, the system failed us. It was not a failure on our part. And how many more black people out there are facing exactly the same dilemma? It's the system that has to change. And, you know, what you're doing is an incredible step along the way to making them recognize that. And that's why this podcast was actually at the top of my list of things to do, really, at the moment, because I think it's that important. We got professors, black professors, we have a seat at the table, and then it's our works that will be discussed at undergraduate levels that's being reviewed in, in um, journals, um, and then it will filter its way through onto the national curriculum. And then our voice will be there. And children, you know, future black children won't have to go through what we went through. And it's our fiduciary responsibility to do what we can to that endeavour. And that's why I'm here today. And I'm so I'm so grateful that you are. And I'm so glad that despite everything, you've been able to have your voice heard and have your story heard. Because I think, and you know, I'll speak as somebody with two grandparents from, from the Caribbean, growing up and having an education that didn't really teach me properly Mm -hmm. about the relationship between Britain and Jamaica and Barbados, which is where my grandparents are from on my dad's side. Um, and having over time an understanding that a lot of the wealth and structure and power mm -hmm. was built upon what happened mm -hmm. in the Caribbean. You know, it was, it was only when the Treasury tweeted, I think, that I found out that, you know, for the first part of my career, I've been paying taxes towards still paying yeah, off. Paying off your slave owners. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I just had this moment, and, you know, I often feel firstly embarrassed that I didn't even know, mm -hmm. but then also sort of almost horrified that I could be, you know, like my parents have been, my grandparents were paying taxation towards the compensation of the people who, enslaved and profited, profited from our ancestors and with with your new methodology and approach it would actually be possible now um or hopefully in time to to yeah, yeah and I, I, a lot of the public discourse and i think where people do often speak past each other is that there's that lack of detail in between i had grew up knowing that there's some there's a relationship between what happened to my ancestors and what was taken from them and what happens now today in the society i live within and the disparities i see but i don't have the detail to be able to take someone step by step and say look this is where the resources came from initially and this is precisely how they've traveled down to where resources now sit and this is why there's disparity and there's that missing link which makes it I think, hard for us to have public discourse in a way that doesn't mean that we can just be dismissed as, you know, as you say, you know, saying something anecdotal or, you know, making claims that we can't substantiate. And it's not that it's not the case. It's just that the methodology and the interest and the focus hasn't been there. And so when, when I read your piece in the BBC and when I heard that you'll be doing this research, I was just, just so happy to hear that it's happening because I think it will just help improve public discourse in this regard. 
as it stands today, I have no funding. I have until the end of next month to discharge the funding condition of my offer. That's the situation that I find myself in. And that is something which needs to be addressed by the research councils, because you can't tell me that work that's attracting this level of interest before it even starts Mm -hmm. is not worthy to be funded just because of a criteria that somebody set to say, if you haven't got a this, you can't do that. And that is really where the problem lies. And this is why we're um, convening a seminar at Liverpool University, myself and Dr. Leona Vaughan from the um, School of Law and Social Justice, along with Sir Hilary Beckles, who's the chair of the CARICOM Commission on Reparations for Slavery, Professor Vereen Shepherd, who's the um, director of the Centre for Reparations Research at the University of the West Indies, and a number of other uh, prominent academics, including Dr. Gonzalez, uh, Dr. Hank Gonzalez from Cambridge University, will be um, convening this symposium called uh, Barriers to Black Academia, A Legacy of Slavery and Colonialism. It was due to happen on the 23rd of August and this year for UNESCO's International Slavery Remembrance Day. It's been put back due to COVID. Um, We will secure a further date for it, um, but we've already secured the funding for that. And we're inviting um, people from the research councils to come to that symposium to actually hear some case studies and also to discuss the issues around the barriers to black academia. And that's something I would very, very much like to involve you in um, if you'd be willing to, because I think what you're doing is really sort of fundamentally a a component of what we're trying to encourage people to do at a strategic level, which is to make a change so that these things can occur, so that these barriers can be broken down. Um, And I think it's it's wonderful what you're doing, and I I absolutely applaud you, and I'm very grateful that you've been kind enough to to take the time to bring me on your podcast. No, I'm really grateful that you were kind enough to take out time from what I know has been a hectic schedule. And so thank you you so much. It's been fascinating to hear both your your personal journey and then also the way that you've been able to spearhead this new approach to piecing together what, what really happened and brought us to where we are today. So thank you so much. Best of luck with securing that research funding. I really hope you're able to, because I think it's it's research and, and narrative that's, that's really needed. I really hope so too. Thank you. I was so absorbed in that conversation that I completely forgot to ask Malik what he would have told his 16-year-old self if he could give his past self some advice. But I didn't want us to miss out on that. And he kindly emailed it over. So I thought I'd share it with you all. And he said that he'd tell his 16-year-old self to never put yourself down. There's enough people who already did that to you. Never big yourself up, as humility ends in honour and pride ends in a fall. Set your own standards and chart your own course. Let the hardship you've endured be your driving force. Success is possible for everyone, even you. Thank you for listening and thank you to our friends at Rare, Clifford Chance, Linklaters and McKinsey for making this podcast possible. We hope that you'll share this episode with friends and family who might find it useful and don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at at Target Oxbridge. If you have a question that you'd like answered in our next series, you can email me at naomi.kelman at targetoxbridge.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.